Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. But tonight I want to talk about instructions uh, given to the churches about uh, elders. Um, heard this story that a, um, an uh, elderly woman walked into a church and there was a uh, friendly usher who greeted her at the door and helped her get up the steps and uh, they got inside and he politely asked, where would you like to sit? And uh, she said, the front row, please. And he says, well, you really don't want to do that. He said, our pastor's really boring. And she said, do you happen to know who I am? And he said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm the pastor's mother. And he says, do you know who I am? And she said, no. And he said, good, because he was the anonymous usher. <laughs> so now you know. You know, sometimes we do wonder how the relationship between, you know, leaders in the church and the congregation, how is that supposed to work? What does the Bible say about it? Uh, how can it in- inform us when it comes to understanding certain things, that's what I'm going to talk to you about. So look, if you will, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 through 21. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 5, 17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. Um, Verse 19, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. So that's the passage we're going to look at tonight. Paul provides some very practical help for the church in Ephesus. You'll know if you're familiar with this letter, 1 Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy while he was in Ephesus. And uh, he's giving the, uh, giving the congregation practical help to understand their responsibilities in relationship between the congregation and the elders. What I want you to see tonight is four things. Uh, what are the congregation's responsibility toward its elders? The first one, number one, is honor them. Uh, it says um, that they are worthy of double honor. We'll talk about the double part in a minute, but obviously we're taught to honor our leaders in general. In this case, honor our elders specifically. And again, when it says elders in the New Testament, you have to look at it within context. The context that elders is used in the pastoral epistles, it's not talking about senior adults or someone older. It's talking about the office of overseer, elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd. All those terms are used interchangeably. I want to uh, <clears throat> jump to a different verse for a minute that I think speaks, speaks to this very well. Uh, it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 and 13, uh, the Bible says there, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Um, 
Although elders are not mentioned by name in this passage in Thessalonians, the nature of the leadership there certainly uh, fits it. Those that labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, in other words, they're teaching and warning and regard them in love because of their work. Uh, it's often overlooked in, in, in the study of, of what the Bible says about elders, but this passage is relevant uh, because it, it applies to what elders do, to lead the flock, love the flock, shepherd the flock, teach the flock, warn the flock, all those things. Um, when Paul realized he had spoke uh, in, in, in the book of Acts, when he is taken into custody, he appeals to Caesar, he ultimately goes to, to Rome, He's in front of a religious court, and he begins to uh, kind of, you know, let it fly as far as speaking his mind. When Paul is corrected, and they tell him that he has spoken rudely to the high priest Ananias, he apologized there in Acts 23, verse 5. He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so obviously God wants us to honor our leaders, and that includes spiritual leaders. Um, notice it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, those that labor among you, and, and the nature of their work is to lead you in the Lord and to admonish you in the Lord. And I love what one um, commentator says. He says, uh, Christian admonition, what does it mean to admonish someone? It is not angry scolding. It is loving correction and warning based on God's word for the purpose of protecting and building up a brother or sister. Serious shepherd elders spend considerable time dealing with people's sins, failures, and offenses, and it's not a part of the shepherding task that men naturally like, but it's an indispensable element of true spiritual care. Admonishing is loving correction. It's not scolding. I love what Adrian Rogers used to say years ago to young preachers. Uh, I went through a course that he had taught that was entitled What Every Pastor Ought to Know. They recorded that, and it's really good. And in that course, he says, pastors should never preach from anger, but they should preach from anguish. Big difference there, okay? Big difference there. Um, Leon Morris said, a special kind of love... Uh, Within the brotherhood is love for leaders. They are to be loved because of their work, not necessarily because of their personal qualities. Uh, you, you've heard that before. You may not like the uh, person, but you respect the office. And so that's what Leon Morris is trying to say. Um, the, the relationship between a congregation and its leaders always has a delicate tension. It can always lead to misunderstanding or ill feelings or division, just like any other relationship. Think about Moses and the people of Israel. Remember the story? You know the story in the Old Testament. Moses is trying to lead Israel, and as they're going along, they're making progress, but they're complaining every step of the way. We're hungry. Where's the food? We're thirsty. Where's the water? You know, where are you leading us, Moses? Are you leading us out here just to die? And finally, one day, you know, Moses has enough, right? My joke has always been, Herman, if God had a bad day and Moses had a bad day at the same time, there might not have been any Israel, right? But uh, the point is, um, you know, we have to understand that and we have to work together uh, for peace. And so that's why in 1 Thessalonians it says um, to do that, to uh, regard them in a highly in love because of the work and be at peace among yourselves. 
And so obviously when it comes to leaders, we are to honor them. Well, let's look on there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And I tell you what, so much has been made of this verse that there are certain faith groups out there that believe there's two classes of elders, those who teach and those who who lead. But that's not quite right because the qualifications for an elder overseer in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, explicitly says they must be able to teach. And so what is he talking about here? Well, um, I like what uh, Alexander Strock says. He says all elders must be able to teach the Word of God, but not all desire to work fully at preaching and teaching. Those who are gifted in teaching and spend the time to do so should be properly acknowledged by the local church, and thus they receive double honor. Uh, in other words, uh, you can have elders in the church, and they are godly men. They, they, they are respected because of their testimony and the lifestyle they lead. They are all men that are able to teach the Word of God and cor- you know, correctly handle the Word of God, but not all of those men may necessarily do what I do in the sense of uh, being devoted full-time vocationally where my means of income is to preach and teach the Word of God, okay? And so here it's saying that the elders who do that, that work hard at preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. Now, Here's uh, another point that Alexander Strzok makes. He says, The advantage of the principle first among equals is that it allows for functional, gift-based diversity within the eldership team without creating an official superior office over fellow elders. The difference among the elders are functional, not formal. And uh, I would agree. So what is he talking about here? This double honor that these elders that work hard at preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Um, Again, when you're teaching the Word of God and you're going through it either book by book, verse by verse, or you're going through it uh, by studying a particular topic or theme, uh, sometimes it forces you to be honest. So I want to tell you that I'm teaching you this because it's in the Word. There's no personal motivation behind it as your pastor. And there's nothing to read into it. So I want to say that up front, okay? Uh, but, but here's what it says. It says that double honor is financial support. And so my second point when it comes to uh, what should the congregation do toward its elders, they honor them. And the second point is they support them. And in this sense, it means financial support. Now, what does double honor mean? Well, again, look at what it says in the very next verse. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. This is where, when you study the Word of God in context, you're able to see what it's saying. And so we look at honor, and we just think of attitude. In this sense, it's more like a honorarium, financial support. And then it gives you an example that illustrates that by don't put a muzzle on an ox, a worker's worthy of his wages. And since Paul is teaching this, what's really cool is Paul has used this same stuff 
in another area of the New Testament. So look, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul was teaching about how uh, those that live by the gospel should be supported by the gospel, okay? And yet, at the same time, he was bragging to the Corinthian church that he was bivocational, he was a tent maker, and that he preferred to to not take money from churches and just do it for free so that he could boast so that whenever he had to confront false teachers that were in it for the money, that he could say, you love the money, but I love the Lord and I'm doing it whether I get paid or not. And he did that as a boast. Yet at the same time, he taught that the church ought to support those that live by the gospel. Look, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Here's what Paul says. He asks a few rhetorical questions. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake. Because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Isn't that good? Again, this just simply provides biblical teaching as to why churches should financially support their pastors. Again, I'm amazed when I read the Word of God how practical it is and how it's got so much stuff in there that we don't normally think about until we start digging and looking. And so, as uh, Alexander Strzok says, he says, Paul is saying that complete unity exists between the Old and New Testaments, both Moses talking about the oxen and Jesus, talking about a worker worthy of his wages, agree that a laboring man is worthy of his wages. Um, recently, I was um, at a uh, thing for pastors that they had at another church here in town uh, a month ago, and they had a, they had a pastor from Africa. His uh, name is Conrad Mbabwe. Don't ask me to say that again. Great guy. He talked about preaching, and I've been reading his book, and lo and behold, as I was preparing this message, I had just read a chapter in his book that actually addressed this very passage. And I went, well, isn't that cool? And so here's what he said. He said, providing financial support for pastors is not an optional extra. The health of any church depends on the quality of the ongoing preaching ministry. So churches must make it a high priority not only to have good pastors preaching to them, but also to pay their pastors well enough for them to be able to care for their own family needs. I thought that was neat. So let's, let's move on. Again, I'm showing you what the Scripture says. So what are the congregation's responsibilities toward its elders? 
to honor them, to support them, and number three, to protect them. Look in verse 19. It goes on and it says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Now, um, let's be honest. Leadership is a tough business. You have to have a uh, tender heart, but you got to have a tough hide, okay? And uh, it's never easy. Leadership's never been easy, and it probably never will be, at least not on this side of heaven. Um, as one scholar said, when people become angry at their leaders, they think they have the right to strike out at them and say whatever they want to say. So Scripture provides protection for elders by saying, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. What does this mean? It means don't listen to unsubstantiated charges and don't automatically accept as true an accusation made against an elder. Our judgments then are to be governed by facts, evidence, and witnesses, not rumors. Well, I would agree with that. Anytime you hear an accusation towards anyone, you need to make sure you collect all the facts. You need to make sure that you uh, have the full picture of what's going on before you just make a, you know, a rash decision or a quick judgment. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 gives us a, a principle that we uh, should follow not only biblically, we should follow this legally. Okay, it's that, it's that good. But Deuteronomy 19.15, in the law of Moses, it says, One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, why is that important? Because if you don't have to have witnesses, then anybody can say anything and then it's he said, he said, he said, she said, she said, she said, they said, they said, whatever, right? A lot, 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 lot of talk there, I know. But uh, you get the idea. Matthew 18 gives us a very biblical approach to handling uh, conflict and sin. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, I've read this for years, but it took me a long time to realize what that means. <clears throat> for many years when I read that verse, let me tell you what I heard, okay? I heard if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private, and if he listens, you've won the argument. Did you catch that? That's not in there, right? My point in saying that is sometimes we're more concerned about winning the argument than we are winning our brother or our sister, whichever the case may be. Well, Jesus says, someone sins against you, go to them in private, deal with it there, and if they listen, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, Every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, then let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Does it work? I fully believe it does. 
also know that we pay for it when we don't follow Scripture. I know years ago when I was a much younger pastor, uh, I was in a situation where I served under a pastor. He, he left the church to do mission work as the associate pastor. They called me to be the next senior pastor. And within six months, everything that the pastor had done in mission work fell through and he decided he wanted to come back and be the pastor. And overnight went from everybody being happy to the church splitting right before my eyes. You're talking about being caught off guard. That was like getting blindsided by a Mack truck. And um, I went and talked to him. Uh, we got along, obviously. I respected him. I served under him. I uh, went to him and talked to him. And I left thinking we got everything all worked out. And then a few days go by and other people come to me. Well, you don't know. He's doing this. He's doing that. And so because I've got a counseling background, because I love to communicate, because I believe that rational people can sit down and talk about their problems, I kept going back to my brother because I really wanted to win my brother. Not the argument in that case. What I found out after the fact was I was violating Scripture. What do I mean by that? If you go to your brother in private and you can't reach them, you can't win them, you walk out thinking we're good, and then you find out two days later that you're not. You don't keep going to your brother. You take two or three witnesses with you. Learn that one the hard way. You have to follow Scripture. Now, Paul carries Jesus' teaching directly into the relationship with elders. Uh, he says here, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. If someone's got an issue with a pastor or a leader, deacon or whatever, then they need to go to that person privately. Uh, that's what scripturally you would do. If that doesn't work, then take two or three witnesses. Uh, that's the biblical way to handle it. Well, let's, let's shift to the next step. Let's you know, we want to assume innocence until proven guilty, but, you know, pastors aren't perfect either. Uh, churches, as you well know, have been, been hurt in the past when a pastor is uh, either a poor leader or they take things personal and things become political and there's factions in the church. So what does the Bible say when the pastor or, or one of the elders is the problem. What does the Bible say about that? Well, that's the fourth thing that I want to mention. What is a congregation's responsibilities toward its elders? Well, you honor them, you support them, you protect them, but in some cases you discipline them, okay? And let's look and see what the Bible teaches about that. Uh, in other words, what if you have followed the Scriptures you have gone to your brother in private, and what if they refuse to accept responsibility? What if they refuse or reject correction? What do you do? Well, in 1 Timothy 5.20, it really makes me tremble when it says, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's telling him how to handle 
leadership problems when you have problems with a leader. And ultimately, if it gets to the point to where the accusation is true and the leader needs to repent or at least receive correction, and they're not willing to do that, think process, think principle, okay? There's not a specific uh, sin mentioned in here, okay? So some of you are saying, well, what would a person have to do for that to happen? Well, again, I think sometimes the Bible gives us principles that we can learn and we prayerfully apply them to situations when they happen. And so in this case, whatever it is, it's, it's obviously serious. The leader is not receptive. They're not repentant. Uh, they're not taking responsibility. Then it says public rebuke publicly rebuke those who sin, and then it has an effect of fear on everyone else. Well, man, if, if they're getting called out, I'm going to make sure I'm living the way I should. And then it's almost like Paul understands to Timothy, a younger pastor, that this is a, this is a hard pill to swallow as a leader. And so he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ and the elect angels to do this without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. In other words, when you do this, you're doing it out of principle. doesn't matter who the person is, what the fault is. You can't say, well, yeah, we'll call them out, but we won't call them out. You've got to be uh, impartial about it. You can't show favoritism. And so, as one commentator says, he says, the major point is that an elder's sin must be publicly exposed, not hidden, or swept under the carpet, a spiritual leader's sin must be treated with great concern because it has grave ramifications. It can lead more people astray. It can cause the unbelieving world to mock God, the church, and the gospel. And if the world sees that local churches take sin seriously, especially when disciplining their sinful leaders, then it will believe that Christians mean what they preach. And furthermore, only when the discipline of an erring church leader is made public is there any chance of controlling one of the most divisive forces in a church, and that's rumors, gossip, and misinformation. And so I would say that whenever a leader is dividing a church, that's probably one of my first things I would look for. I would go to them, and I would try to win my brother. And if that didn't work, I would take witnesses. And if that didn't work, God forbid if we ever had to do it, then you publicly rebuke them. That's not something I would take flippantly. It's not something I would take lightly. Um, The experience that I went through in that previous church that I mentioned a while ago, I've reflected on that many times, wishing I would have done something different and not learned the hard way. But let me say this before I move on to the next point. When it comes to following the process in Scripture, don't make it mechanical. Don't say, well, I went to Brother Herman. He didn't hear a thing I said. So tomorrow morning, I'm taking two or three guys with me. And then the next day, he didn't, he didn't hear a thing I said. So I'm bringing it before the church Sunday morning. Okay? It don't work that way. I, I think you have to, you, you don't treat the process mechanically. Like, I did step one, check. 
I did step two. On to to step three, it's not a mechanical process. I think it's a prayerful process where you have to prayerfully go through the process and let the Holy Spirit uh, lead you to obey the Word in His way and His time. And when you do that, when you have the... uh, the witness of the Spirit and the obedience of Scriptures, and you do it prayerfully and carefully, I believe God blesses that. Well, there you have four things that the congregation is responsible for toward its elders, pastors, shepherds. Honor them, support them, protect them, and yes, even discipline them. Uh, Obviously, this is not a a lesson that I just pull out of my back pocket, okay? <laughs> but when you go through the Word of God, whether it's uh, through a book-by-book, verse-by-verse, you, you deal with things you normally wouldn't think about or talk about. And obviously, when you study themes in Scripture, in this case, elders and deacons, then I want to look at everything that the Scripture says about that issue, and then I want to bring it to your attention. Here's what the Bible says. So let's kind of wrap this up tonight. I've got one last thing that I would add, and that is to pray for your leaders. Obviously, it's biblical to do that. And one, uh, one verse that I want to end with is Romans 15, verses 30 through 32. In Romans 15, verse 30, it says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Now here is Paul talking to the congregation at Rome, and he's saying, I want to appeal to you through the Lord and through the Spirit to pray together to God on my behalf. In other words, to pray for me. And then he tells them what to pray for. Verse 31, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul was persecuted in his ministry. He was a Jew. He was a very religious Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was against Christianity when it started. He he got orders from the high priest and he would round up Christians. He would persecute them, put them in prison, even applauded the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. But when the Holy Spirit of God got a hold of him, when he met the risen glorified Christ on the road to Damascus, well, that rocked his world. Paul got saved. He ultimately not only became a follower of Jesus, he became an apostle of Christ. And everywhere he went, the old crowd that he used to run with that was very religious, they opposed him. They opposed him. They persecuted him. They gave him problems at every turn. The unbelieving Jews specifically did. And so he says, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judah, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. And as I look at that, I went, that's a great prayer um, template when it comes to praying for your leaders. Pray that God would uh, protect them from unbelievers. Pray that God would uh, make their ministry acceptable to believers, and then by God's will, that they can be a a blessing that refreshes those that they encounter. I can't think of a better way to to pray than that. So I want to challenge you tonight to pray for your leaders this week. Pray for their ministry. Pray for their testimony. Pray for their family. Well, let's pray. 
Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this word from the word. And Lord, as we continue to learn what the Bible says, specifically the New Testament about elders, and starting next week, what the Bible teaches about deacons, Lord, would you just inform our hearts and minds of what Scripture says, that we might be people of the book and put your word into practice. Lord, I thank you for our congregation. I thank you for each member. I thank you for each family. Lord, it is a, an honor and a privilege to serve uh, here at Pleasant Hill, and I thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that as we come together, as we seek you, as we study your word, Lord, may we strive to obey your word in all things. Lord, I pray for our lives. I pray for our families. I pray for our ministries. Lord, we have opportunities all around us to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to represent you wherever we go. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you'll give us favor that people might see you at work in our lives and through our lives and that we would be prepared to give them a reason for the hope that we have. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.